Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Beck, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, we are welcoming retired Lieutenant Colonel Bob Leindecker to our podcast. I am really looking forward to having a great conversation with you, Bob, and thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Barry. All right. Well, Bob, before we get too deep into the weeds here, um, tell me about where you grew up. Well, I grew up in a small uh, town in northern Ohio between Akron and Cleveland uh, on a 144-acre farm. Uh, <clears throat> that was paradise for me as a young boy because we had woods, pastures, hills, and a river, and each had a different attraction to me. And the 144 acres also allowed me a lot of space for my high school adventures, which uh, we'll discuss later probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, growing up on a on a large farm like that, what was your responsibility as a child? Did you have chores and that sort of thing? What kind of things did you grow? Um, any livestock, that sort of thing? It was a uh, milk-producing farm as such, and we grew crops that uh, supported that, uh, oats and wheat and <clears throat> baled hay and straw. For the most part, I was pretty young when I was there, and therefore didn't have a whole lot of heavy responsibilities, although I did uh, clean the, the uh, stalls for the cows, which was a educational job, to say the least, <laughs> and <clears throat> helped moving bales around when we baled hay and straw. That, I remember, will <clears throat> stick with me till the day I die, because you had to wear a long sleeve shirt just to keep from scratching your arms up. And it was always done in the summertime with extreme heat and humidity, and you had to chaff down your neck and up your arms, and you itched for the next three days. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Some things make a lasting impact, right? So yes. being hot in a hot and humid environment now, it probably isn't isn't so appealing. <laughs> no, it's a pleasure because I don't have the shaft up on my neck. Okay, gotcha. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Earlier in our pre-call, um, you shared with me that you took a liking to playing with explosives at a very young age <laughs> and uh, just had a very curious nature about you. Can you share the story about when you were in the eighth grade? Uh, certainly. Uh, my parents bought me a chemistry set when I was in the eighth grade. And let me say that if I was a teenager today doing what I did back then, I'd either be in jail or as a minimum on the no-fly list or the FBI watch list. Probably the ATF and the FBI would be arguing over who had jurisdiction over me at some point. Okay. <laughs> I, like I say, I lived on a small farm and took that chemistry set, and as most people do when you had the chemistry set, they give you a little instruction book on how to do simple experiments and such. <clears throat> and I did all those, and then decided that uh, I needed to branch out a little bit. <clears throat> Living in a small town, everybody knew each other, and if I ever got into trouble, of course, the town knew it, and then <clears throat> very rapidly after that, my parents knew it. <clears throat> but... Uh, in that small town was a drugstore, and we knew the druggist well, and he would order for me any chemical that I wanted and sell it to me at cost since I didn't have, have a whole lot of money back then. And even back then, I was surprised at the things he could get me. I had all the perchlorates, chlorates, and anything else that might be used in making things that go boom. Also had metallic sodium, white phosphorus, red phosphorus to play with. <clears throat> and like anyone else with a chemistry set, like I said, uh, there was a point in time you branched out. Probably a lot of people uh, at that point made some simple black powder, which I did. And I played around with it for quite a while and, and kind of got bored with the performance after a while. So by the ninth grade, thanks to the chemist, or uh, the druggist, I mean, I was making uh, low explosives, high explosives, and casting my own rocket motors. <clears throat> that. uh the 144 acres was, was beautiful for me, especially with the rockets, because I could launch rockets, and most of them stayed on the farm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, a nearby farmer dropped by with a rocket he found on his property. <laughs> it was a different world back then with tolerance because forever upset. They joked about finding it and often asked me about it. And there were no raised voices, threats, or lawsuits uh, that came out of it. Mm-hmm. I guess overall, I was a pretty lucky guy because I survived. I only had one major accident. Uh, and that was when I was in high school. I was making one of my own formulations of explosives. And I completed it. I wrapped small amounts of it in aluminum foil containers and was carrying them across the uh, basement floor, concrete floor. And I dropped one. Well, I immediately jumped back, but nothing happened. So I bent down and picked it up. And I don't know whether I crushed it when I stood up or whether I had uh, dragged it across the floor and created some friction. I just, all I know is after I stood up and took about one step, it blew up in my hand. Mm. Uh, Only had second degree burns, nothing major as such. Didn't uh, scar me for life. I don't have any scars at all right now. But it was interesting. At that time and that night, uh, I found out how they make flannel shirts because I was wearing a flannel shirt and I I looked down and the only thing on the complete front of my shirt was a small webbing of cotton threads. All the flannel had been burned out. Wow. I look I kind of look like Al Jolson with second degree burns because my face was totally black. Uh-huh. And what amazed me was after that, my parents never said, okay, that's it, no more chemistry experimenting. Uh, I continued on, uh, still doing things that probably I shouldn't have done. And I'm not saying it's my fault, but buying a chemistry set is almost impossible. Hmm. Well, and You just, can find them, but they're mm-hmm. few and far between. Mm-hmm. Back in my days, they were all over the place. Right, right. Um. Well, and and your mom, your mom and dad weren't upset with you for um, experimenting, and then I'm sure they had some concern about you being hurt. Well, yeah, my dad wasn't there that night, uh, and mom, of course, heard the loud noise in the basement and came running to the top of the basement stairs and yelled down, "Are you all right?" and mm-hmm. and I yelled back, "Yes, I'm fine," mm-hmm. because basically I was still in shock. She came down the stairs, looked at me, and let loose with this high-pitched scream, and that kind of startled me, and I looked down at my hand in the front of my shirt, and then all of a sudden, my hand hurt. Uh (laughs) It's one of those things that I was so preoccupied with uh, just the the mental state of not realizing what had happened until she pointed it out to me. Right. But neither one of them got horribly upset. Of course, I got chastised and mm-hmm. said I kind of deserve what I got since I wasn't mortally injured or anything. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, you continue to be super curious regardless of it, right? I mean, you learned you learned something from it, I'm sure. <laughs> I learned not to make that explosive, that particular formulation and drop it on the floor, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um well, what what actually led you to choosing the military, um, Bob? Well, unlike most people, it wasn't a matter of patriotism or desire to serve in the Army. <clears throat> when I went to college, my parents paid for my college education, and, and farm people back then didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, let's just like today, in many cases, the small farmers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and... When I got on campus, I noticed posters and and recruitment and such for the uh, ROTC units and saw that if you made it through the first two years, you got a scholarship for the last two. The only thing you had to do was serve three years uh, on active duty or three years in the reserves. And I told myself that uh, that was not an issue, really. I could save my parents a lot of money and and, uh, could do three years in the Army or, or Air Force at the time were my two choices. Either one of which I could do that three years standing on my head, uh, probably learn more, uh, give me some discipline in life, and uh, I could move on from there. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for ROTC. <clears throat> they only had Army and Air Force. I picked the Army. You could choose your branch in your senior year, and on reading, I saw Ordnance Corps. 
when that dealt with ammunition and explosives, and I thought, gee, that, that's a potential place for me to go. I read a little deeper and, and read about EOD, part of the Ordnance Corps, and I told myself, well, geez, I was home. If I could get commissioned in EOD, I, I would really have fun in the Army. So when I graduated with four majors and a commission as a second lieutenant, uh, I was lucky enough to be commissioned in uh, the Ordnance Corps. And it went uphill from then. I went to Aberdeen for initial training. Towards the end of that, uh, the personnel officer uh, from Millpercent, as it was called back then, came to talk to us individually and ask us what we wanted to do in the Army. I said I wanted to go to uh, Japan, and I wanted to go to EOD school. And he kind of chuckled and said, you know, you, you and everybody else wants to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. And you and a lot of others want to go to EOD school. And I don't have any EOD school quotas right now. So, you know, that's out. And I don't think I can go. You can't go to Japan because there aren't any openings. So what's your next choice? I don't even remember what I chose. I think it was Europe, which would, of course, sent me to Germany, probably. But when uh, I went back to class several days later, I got called out of class for a phone call from the same uh, major that had come up. And he said, well, he said, uh, I've got your next assignment. You're going to be the executive officer at a small ammunition sub-depot in Akazuki, Japan. And I said, what? Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about that. And then he said, well, when you come back to, I have a quota for you for EOD school. So... That's what got me in the Army, and that's what got me into EOD, and I've been happy about both. Wow. Wow. The stars lined up for you that yes. day, Bob. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. truthfully, I'm not sure I would have made a career out of it had I not gotten into EOD. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It continued your to spark your interest, and you felt like you were doing something that had some meaning? Uh, yes, most definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was just a pleasant experience all around. Mm-hmm. I had four units. I commanded four units, two of which were in Vietnam, and had a total of uh, seven EOD assignments. The others were in staff assignments in Redstone and Indian Head, mm-hmm. uh, along with uh, Second Division Ammunition Supply Officer in Korea, which again was ordnance oriented. Now I'm. I, I can't look back on all my EOD assignments and all my staff assignments and such and say that I enjoyed every one of them and the people I was with and the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome to have, you know, a career that you can reflect back on and, and see see the high points of each of each duty station. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit, Bob. So, when you graduated from college, tell me about your what you gra- how many degrees you graduated with. Well, one degree, but it had four majors. Four majors. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, I couldn't handle four degrees. I was going to say, I'm not sure. So, okay. <laughs> I started out as a history major uh-huh. because I do like history, and I thought that would be a thing to go forward to in life. Mm-hmm. And as part of a history major, you had to take political science courses. And at the end of my first year, I went to my advisor, and we talked about things, and he pointed out, you know, you could get a double major here with just a few more political science courses and continue on. And I said, okay, that's fine. So I walked out of there, and and by the end of my sophomore year, I was well on my way to a double major there. But... During the uh, sophomore year, you had to take science courses, you know, whatever. So I took geology, and I really got into that. Uh, And if you take geology, you have to take geography as a side course. Mm -hmm. I went back to my advisor at the end of sophomore year, and I said, geez, you know, I'd like to switch over to a geology major. And he looked at my records and such, and he says, well... uh, if you if you take a lot more classes and apply yourself, you can probably get a geology major too. And I, he said, "You're going to have to sacrifice some of your electives, though." And I looked at him and I said, "What are my choices?" And he went through the list of choices that included the, the math courses. 
And mathematics and I don't get along well. Mm -hmm. We've never had a good working relationship. So I said, well, I'll skip my math courses. And he said, okay. So that, that, that kind of theory and, and philosophy carried through to my senior year, and uh, I graduated in a major with all four, uh, history, political science, geography, and geology. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> and no math. That's pretty and awesome. no math. Yeah. No math. That's pretty cool. And I can safely say that in... You know, I'm 79 now, and I haven't used history, political, or science, geography, or geology uh, much in, in my work days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, but you still have a love for history, and we'll get to that in a bit. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, Bob, so many EOD technicians, no matter what era they served and whether they're still serving or, or veteran status, um, just have a real connection with the community. What do you think it is about EOD that makes it so special? Well, to me, it was the uh, the guys I served with. And I say guys because when I was in, women were just coming into the field at the end of my career, and I unfortunately never had the opportunity to serve with any of them. But mm-hmm. everybody I met, with, with just a few exceptions, and very few, were dedicated, professional, intelligent, and fun-loving guys with a thirst for learning about ordinance and doing their job well. I... Seldom heard a complaint from any of them, and even the small complaints uh, were the type that you could easily solve. <clears throat> if I'd gotten into any other field, I don't think I would have had that uh, feeling towards the guys that were serving with me. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've never, I only have one little disciplinary problem in, in all my years in the field. Uh, and it was so small that it was almost inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Right. I liked the work I did. I liked the work that uh, you know the whole unit did. I liked the training. I liked the evaluations that we went through, uh, annual tests and such. It's just I felt like every day at the end of the day that I had accomplished something that helped somebody else. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. An environment um, where you could thrive, really, and make a difference. That's that's really, really cool. Um, mm-hmm. is, is there a particular tour of duty or a story that you would like to share with our listeners that was really special to you? Well, my two units in Vietnam were, were my highlight units. Mm-hmm. One was in Da Nang on the coast, and the other was in Pleiku in the central highlands. And the, the reason that I enjoyed them so much was it allowed me to work to do uh, to do the work that I was trained for, mm-hmm. dealing with live ordnance, rendering it safe, destroying it, whichever. And any time I went out on an incident, I figured that I was either saving an American or a Vietnamese life uh, or from injury, or saving property or helping some combat element do their mission. And I've always looked at it from the perspective of pitting my knowledge of ordnance or IEDs, booby traps, whichever, against the guy that designed them uh, and see who came out on top. Mm-hmm. Those days we had no bomb suits. We had no robots. We didn't have any sophisticated tools and equipment like they have today. We just carried simple hand tools, walked out on an incident site, got on our hands and knees, and worked on the item. <clears throat> And as an aside, in my two tours in Vietnam where I was out in the field a lot working on the ordinance, only one time did I ever carry an EOD pub to the field or read it before I left. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Well, was that just the, I mean, do you attribute that to, you know, just retaining the knowledge that you did read in the publications or just having the experience, the hands-on experience time and time again? All the above, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. I mean, each time we went out, we learned something and carried that knowledge forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I don't know 
there probably were units that took Bob Sidfield, but I don't recall ever seeing him working with other people or talking to other people about taking the Bob Sidfield. And the same with tools. We car- we carried the armor usually in an impact wrench in the, in the vehicle, but uh, other than small hand tools, uh, that was it. And we never had to call back or go back to big bar or steal another uh, tool while we were on an incident that I recall. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, do you do you believe that the sophistication of the ordinance that um, over the years, I mean, there has been changes, there have been you know tremendous changes or anything? I'm curious about that because you you have studied a lot of ordinance. Obviously, you have a lot of experience, but also history. Um, you know. Uh, ordinance from today's modern world, too. So um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, like ordinance itself, over the years, things have gotten more sophisticated and and more involved with technology and work. Uh, On the IED side, certainly. I mean, the IEDs that uh, the techs that are working on today, Afghanistan and Iraq and other places around the world, are much more sophisticated than what we dealt with in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the tools they have now to assist them in working on them, uh, being able to send a robot downrange, uh, get a video, and come back and, and talk over what you're going to do, and then put on a bomb suit and go down and do it. We, Like I said, we didn't have those luxuries. Mm-hmm. But what we dealt with was, I won't say basic in design, but certainly below the level of what's uh, dealt with today. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Ordinance the same way. Mm-hmm. I think the most uh, the most hazardous thing I could think of in Vietnam was a Mark 36 destructor on a uh, bomb, mm-hmm. which I had the pleasure of going down on one time. But anyhow, mm-hmm. uh, today it's it's ordinance items with the missiles we have and the rockets and fusing and such is much more advanced than uh, what we had in Vietnam. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, the common the common denominator in all of it um, is that they're deadly and dangerous. So um, that that hasn't changed. <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, sophistication adds some risk and danger to the incident, but... Uh, there's no such thing as a safe incident as such. Mm-hmm. My comment always is that the only thing predictable about explosives and explosive devices is they are predictable. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, thank you for sharing that, Bob. Um, do you have Do you have a proud moment in in all of your years of service? Uh, yeah. Uh, Actually, the proudest moment came after I retired in 2017. Okay. I didn't retire in 2017, but I retired in 1984, but my moment was in 2017. Uh, and I was inducted into the Army Ordnance Corps uh, Hall of Fame. Wow. I'm proud of that day, but personally, I don't think I deserve the honor. <laughs> my career was normal in my eyes, and many others out there deserve more deserving than I am in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what an honor. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and the funny thing is, after uh, that became public knowledge, I was contacted by my high school, and they wanted to induct me in their Hall of Fame also. <laughs> well, did did that happen? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Cool. Much to the shock of the principal. <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> I was an interesting student in high school. Uh, every morning when the principal came on for announcements uh, about what was going to happen during the day, they ended up the announcements by saying, would the following students please report to the principal's office. And when it got to that point, I started to fold up my books and gather my things because I knew my name was going to be on the list. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. Were you always but up what, to mischievous stuff, Bob? Uh, yes, to say the least. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. When I stood up to give my acceptance speech for the uh, Hall of Fame in high school in front of all the teachers in the student body, I started out uh, by saying, uh, I glanced over to the principal, and I started out by saying that uh, I'm an addict. Mm -hmm. 
And I looked over at him, and he had this kind of thousand-yard stare and didn't know what to do next. And uh, I said, continued on by saying, I'm addicted to loud noises and explosions. And then went on with my speech covering my EOD days and Army days and you know what I've been doing afterwards. And I didn't, I certainly held the attention of the student body. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you did. I'm sure that was quite entertaining and, and interesting, you know, a history lesson for people. That's really neat. <laughs> really neat. Um, well, did the principal talk to you at all? Afterwards, you mean? Yes. Uh, yes, he did, of course. Uh, and I asked him how he felt when I, when I started my speech, and he said, well, I was a little hesitant there because it wasn't going in the direction I thought it would. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Bob, do you have any funny stories uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners during your time in service or beyond? Well, a couple come to mind. Uh, one wasn't funny at the time, but I have relived it uh, since I've retired and left Vietnam. Uh, we were called, uh, this was when I was in the 85th in Pleiku in the Central Highlands. We were called out to a fire base because uh, a 155 cell propeller had stuck round in the tube. And the gun crew had done everything they should do with the bell rammer and uh, even rammed it up against a tree and thought the only thing that did was bend the handle on the bell rammer. So we went out, and that's the only time I took a publication to the field because it was a procedure that I had never done before and I wanted to do it right. And the procedure called for a lot of elevating the tube and a lot of sandbags under the breech to catch the projectile and a combination of rags and water in the bore uh, and a blasting cap with a little little bit of a black powder charge on it. And we did it to the book. Uh, I had a guy from the unit go out with me. Uh, We did everything that we should do. We reread the book a couple times because he'd never done it either. Uh, Pulled everybody back and set the black powder off and there was this huge plume of water came out the muzzle and Sand came out the open door of the back of the self-propelled, and I walked up to the back of the self-propelled, expecting to see the round on top of the sandbags, and all I saw was sand all over the place and a 155-millimeter hole in the aluminum floor of the self-propelled. <laughs> the projectile had gone through the sandbags, through the floor, and embedded into the ground within about, uh, oh, I'd say eight inches uh, of the tip of the fuse sticking out. <clears throat> and I was mortified, of course, because that certainly didn't go the way it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only way, what happened was it pedaled the aluminum down when it went through and just left the jagged edge of aluminum sticking down. And as luck would have it, uh, you couldn't drive the self-propelled off because two of those downward pedals were in the way of the fuse. And there was no way you could get under there uh, and dig the projectile out uh, in the condition it was in and everything in that short or small space. So I asked him for a big sledgehammer, a handheld sledgehammer, not the long handle type. And I talked to the driver and I said, okay, I'm going to get under the self-propelled. I'm going to be on my back and I'm going to be yelling things to you. So, you know, when I yell, go forward slowly. That's what I mean, as slow as you can. And when I pound on the bottom of the SP, you stop. And when I say turn right just a little bit, turn right a little bit, and I'll pound on the bottom of the SP, and you stop. Uh, About 15 minutes or so of doing that, we were able to drive the SP off the round without uh, hitting the fuse. Uh, That immediately, when I got back to the unit, resulted in a blistering uh, letter being sent to Indian Head uh, Detective on the value of their stuck round procedure. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it has been changed several times over the years. Mm-hmm. But I was really upset. And to top it off, about oh, three or four days later, one of our vehicles needed to go in for maintenance. And I rode along just to talk to the maintenance officer and watch the operation and such. And, uh, we pulled in a bay, and I wasn't paying any attention to anything around us as such. But I got out and was standing there talking to one of the mechanics. And I heard a guy behind me say, 
Yeah, we had to tow this stupid SP in because the EOD guy that went out, blew a hole in the bottom of the floor, and cut the hydraulic lines. <laughs> and I turned around, and sure enough, that was the SP. Uh, so I immediately left the area and went in the uh, the uh, maintenance officer's uh, area there, so I, I wouldn't get in a conversation with the guy because I was embarrassed enough already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, did you have to eat a little bit of humble pie there? <laughs> no, I never even talked to the guy. I, I chickened out. I have to admit, I, I literally chickened out. Did I, you? I, I should have said something to him, but I didn't know what to say at that point. Other yeah. than you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. And I had another incident uh, going between Penhead and Contum in uh, the Pleiku area. The uh, <clears throat> We got on one incident and got a call over the radio to go to another, so we had to go from one area to the other. And unlike the uh, EOD guys today in Iraq and Afghanistan, they couldn't go out of the wire without a security uh, element with them. Uh, we traveled all over South Vietnam in an EOD vehicle, be it a deuce and a half or, or a jeep. No security except what the weapons we carried. Mm-hmm. And we were traveling down the road, and... I looked over to the to the right out of the tree line about 100 yards off the road, and here comes a bunch of black pajama-clad guys with the, the pyramid hats on carrying AK-47s. And I poked the driver in the arm, and I said, look what's over there. And he, he, he started to uh, breathe heavy. Uh, and the guy said, uh, well, this is what we'll do. We'll wave at him, yell hello, and I'll step on it. So we did. We waved at him, yelled hello and everything, and uh, strangely enough, a couple of them waved back. Uh, and we kind of floated and drove around the corner just as uh, rifle shots came up behind us, but uh, we got out unscathed. <laughs> well, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess the only other humorous thing, uh, and it wasn't humorous to one of my teammates, uh, was in EOD school. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to school, we did it at Indian Head, but we had uh, uh, instructional time at Fort McClellan and Chemical, and then we went uh, for a couple of weeks at Eglin, to, I think to the demo range you guys, uh, the EOD school is in right now, mm-hmm. to do reading and digging and, and some bomb fuse uh, recovery and work. Mm-hmm. And we <clears throat> were in a shaft that was probably, I don't know, maybe 15 feet deep, uh, of course, all the wooden uh, backing around it and everything else. <clears throat> Down there with the bomb, laying on our stomachs, uh, investigating the nose fuse of the bomb, when one of the instructors saw fit to throw a snake down the pit. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't mind snakes. I handle just about any snake. Uh, it doesn't bother me. It startled me, to say the least. I wasn't expecting a snake to fall down between us or on us or whatever. <laughs> The other guy, though, <clears throat> had an aversion to snakes, and he proved it. I don't think <clears throat> he showed any calmness whatsoever. I think he set kind of a land speed record climbing up the side of the shaft material, even though there was a ladder in the pit. He got up and <laughs> climbed up that shaft and was out of there in a heartbeat. Oh, my gosh. And I can only think, if that happened today, that instructor would be in for major problems. Yes. It was just, he'd be called before the CO down there in a heartbeat, and gosh, only knows what would happen to him. But it was a different army back then. Yeah, for uh, sure. Not to say it was any better or any worse, but it was certainly different. Right, right. Practical jokes aren't so, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they're kind of frowned upon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds really funny. Um, I'm sure that young man that was down in the pit with you never forgot that. He probably talks about it as often as I do when we're in a bunch of EOD guys, yes. I've never met him since that time. I don't even remember for sure who it was, so Uh that compounds the problem. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, you've certainly had some adventures throughout your career, and I'm glad you had some funny stories to share, too. More than happy to. Um, In 1984, you retired from the Army and went on to work on the civilian side of the Army in an intel position. You enjoyed that job. Tell us what your job entailed. Well, you're right. I spent 23 years at the Foreign Science and Technology Center, which 
later became the National Ground Intelligence Center, working in the UD desk and also had the hand and rifle grenades desk. And to me, it was a dream job because I was involved with ordnance still, and it also kept me in contact with another complete generation of BOD techs. <clears throat> Once the Desert Storm began, uh, until I retired in 2009, I had the opportunity to talk with uh, and message uh, people in the theaters uh, directly. <clears throat> I tried to be the go-to guy between the intel field and the EOD troops deployed uh, to answer questions and, and tell them that if I didn't know the answer to the question, I knew who would have the answer so that I would get them to call back and give them the correct material. It was just a thoroughly enjoyable job, uh, analyzing the intel reports that came in on foreign EOD capabilities, uh, <clears throat> analyzing rifle grenade and hand grenade technologies and producing documents. Mm -hmm. The, uh, let's see, <laughs> I've got to start here again, I'm sorry. That's okay, that's all right. I, I strive to put publications out to the field that were unclassified because I knew from my days that one of the reasons I never took a pub to the field was because it was always classified. And then you had to worry about, you know, <clears throat> taking care of that pub while you were out on the incident site. Mm -hmm. So I thought if I could write unclassified publications on <clears throat> hand grenades and rifle grenades in particular, it was much more difficult on the EOD side. <clears throat> but anyhow, if I could write those publications, it would be a benefit to the field guys. So I tried to produce small format documents that would fit in uh, fatigue pockets uh, at the time and be unclassified. I had to convince the commander of NGIC, uh just about each time the command cha commander changed that producing unclassified intel documents was not a sacrilegious thing. It, every document didn't have to be top secret when it went out the door. And I still have people come up to me at EOD events and thank me for the support. Uh, and that's what made me so happy at the time and, and kind of gives me a warm feeling now. Mm -hmm. Right. Made a, made a definite impact, Bob. You have. Um, well, you and your wife spend a lot of time collecting military memorabilia. Um, what, is, what is your primary collectible? Well, I don't know that I have a primary area. I would say the EOD field, history and memorabilia and material from there. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got over 170 challenge coins and over 3,500 worldwide patches and badges from bomb disposal and EOD. 40-some <clears throat> uniforms from World War II on up and a slew of other things. <clears throat> But I also have a collection of uh, World War One enlisted collar discs. Uh, I've got 12,000 rounds of small, medium caliber ammunition. They're all different, plus a pile of other ordnance items. <clears throat> it's just, we consider ourselves collectors, uh, and I guess a more accurate term would be uh, accumulators. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. A collector usually concentrates on one particular thing and then builds a collection from there. We accumulate historical items that just catch our attention or fit into our collecting areas. Mm -hmm. right. I've got four bomb suits, including the Federal Spooner suit, which is one of the first ones made for civilian techs, two modern army and uh, one state police bomb suit. Wow. The problem is I can't display them all because we don't have room in our basement. <laughs> right, right. Well, do you have plans to to preserve preserve what you've collected, Bob? Well, yes. Uh, although we haven't gotten down to the nitty gritty yet, uh, we consider ourselves caretakers of military history, not necessarily the owners of it. We have display cases, we have mannequins dressed out, the walls are covered with things, we've got stuff hanging from the ceiling in the basement uh, in, in two large rooms. And we enjoy having people over that are interested in it and, and such. We don't advertise we have it uh, as such, but uh, we certainly haven't turned people down that want to see it. 
We have two sons, and we've talked over with them the disposition of the collection. Uh, and also told them that we will probably keep collecting until the day we drop over, mm-hmm. just because of our interest in it. For the most part, the collections will go to other collectors, because we know that uh, they will treat the items with the same care and respect that we have, and they will be perpetuated as part of the history. Mm-hmm. Uh some of it will be auctioned off, no doubt, on the ordinance line. Uh, but that's something we'll get into with our sons and, and document and such uh, later on. I'm in the process right now of going through my ordinance collection, photographing and describing the major items and giving a kind of a ballpark value on it so that the sons have something to go by uh, when the day comes. Right. Right. Well, that's pretty amazing. Um, well, the EOD Museum here um, in Florida is getting closer to fruition, and you serve on the board for this effort. Tell us about what the efforts have been so far and what people can potentially do to help. Well, right now we're still in the design stage and fundraising stage. <clears throat> we're not gathering funds as, as quickly as we'd like to, but uh, <clears throat> we're hoping to get into uh, corporate business donations here shortly that will <clears throat> offer those people a sponsorship to a certain area in the museum <clears throat> and hopefully allow for larger contributions. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Air Force Museum in Eglin has offered us a Quonset hut for display. <clears throat> Once we complete that design and finalize the displays, Their museum will take over the maintenance of the building and the displays, the security of the building, and all other responsibilities in in operation. So basically, it's a win-win for the EOD community. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll represent all four services from the day that uh, EOD began until uh, current times. And once it's up and running, the EOD community will not have to worry about gathering funds to complete the or not complete but to have the the, the building maintained and the displays maintained mm-hmm. like I said the big issue right now is money raising uh, we're still working on that at some point we'll probably canvas the field uh, retirees and such for donations of small items to display which attribution will be given to of course we're not particularly looking for ordinance items unless they're really un usual and pertinent to the EOD field because the museum is not an ordinance museum. It's a museum of the legacy and the history of the EOD field and the four services itself. We've got a lot of robots and bomb suits already uh, donated, and we'll probably have to rotate those through the displays. But the effort is well underway. We've got representatives from all four services serving on a uh, committee right now that uh, are working with other agencies in the Air Force Museum to set this thing up. Uh, of course, your your organization is, is deeply involved in it, and that's been a help to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd also like to put in a plug for another museum, too. Sure. The National Museum of the Army uh, near Fort Belvoir is just opened. And if you visit there, you're an EOD tech, past or present, uh, visit the outside walls with all of the granite stones for the various organizations in the Army over the year. Because one of those stones, and I have not gone up there yet myself, so I can't tell you exactly where it is, but one of those stones... Uh, was designed for the history of the EOD field, past, present, and future. The badges and some words on it. Money was raised from the EOD field, both active and retired, to get it done. Uh, and from photographs, it, it really looks nice. So it, it's good to have Army EOD history as part of that museum and visible to all. Yeah, for sure. Um We'll have to check that out for sure. Um, well, Bob, what about um, how can how can people help in reference to the the fundraising stage? I guess of the of the EOD museum. Um, is there 
GoFundMe page or anything to that effect that people can go to? We've closed down the first GoFundMe page because mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> GoFundMe pages can only last for a certain amount of time, and then they're they're automatically shut down and closed out. We have not opened another page that I am aware of. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Contributions will certainly be accepted. Yes, the Air Force Master Blasters have <clears throat> volunteered to go, to be used for the fundraising effort as such, having mm-hmm. so another separate account. Uh, I would say if, if you have money to contribute or want to contribute to the effort, uh, I'll check on whether we're going to start another GoFundMe page. Mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> contact me. And by the time that uh, anybody would contact me, uh, preferably probably by email, uh, I will have figured out uh, how individuals can continue to uh, uh, put money into this effort. Okay. Right off the top of my head, I don't know the details at this point, and I'm sorry for that. No, it's totally fine. I mean, this is a this is a, a grassroots effort here that um, everybody's doing their very best to um, get it up and running and have a place where we can preserve the history of, of EOD, which is very, very important to this community. And I think, um, is it okay for me to uh, include your email address, Bob, in the write-up for this podcast so that people can um, uh, contact you directly. Okay, perfect. Great. Well, thank you for that. And then I know that you're also the historian for the National EOD Association. So what what is this role like, and why do you enjoy this so much? Well, again, because it involves the history of the field as far as my enjoyment. I have a stack of file boxes uh, here in in a lying closet uh, to keep them protected that have all kinds of historical documents uh, concerning the Army UD field and, and some of other services. And maintaining those documents, adding to them, uh, is part of the uh, role of the historian. And also answering questions, either from the organization or from <clears throat> outside organizations. I still do answers to uh, law enforcement EOD squads and to military EOD squads, or I should say companies now. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's hard for me to separate my work in the EOD historian capacity from my work on my own behalf in answering those questions. Uh, I have both the EOD files from the association and my own collection of 48 of the plastic uh, hanging file crates that are filled with bombasols of reports and manuals and photos and student notebooks and other material to lean on when my aging memory fails me. Mm-hmm. So I draw from all of that to hopefully still support the field as best I can. Right, right. Well, how can someone become a member of the National EOD Association, Bob? Go to the website, uh, look up the National EOD Association, or either that or N-A-T-E-O-D-A, and there's a portion of that website that shows uh, membership uh, requirements and gives you the form to do it. Okay, and this is open to um, all EOD technicians, every service, am I correct? It's open to every service, past and present, and we'd certainly like to get some of today's techs in. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we're a gray man's or, or a gray person's organization. There are some women there. Uh, we're not getting the, the junior membership uh, in as far as people serving today. Mm-hmm. And at some point in time, that's going to really cause problems to the organization. Sure, sure. Well, I will add this to the list of resources too, Bob, in hopes that um, some folks will roger up as as a member. Um, and then um, if you could give any advice to our current EOD technicians or those going to school right now um, to become an EOD technician, what, what would it be, Bob? Well, if you're still in EOD school... Uh, apply yourself to the maximum or you're going to have trouble. 
but if you're in school, you already know that, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot to learn in a fairly short time, considering the volume of instruction. And you've, you've really got to apply yourself to uh, make it through. But know also that the school teaches you the basic fundamentals of EOD. You don't have a true learning experience until you get to the first day you walk into the EOD unit. Listen to your senior NCOs and officers, and you will have the opportunity to merge your schoolhouse knowledge with that of those who've made that lonely walk before you. And RSP a lot of IEDs and other ordinates in their careers. And that's the fountain of knowledge that the school can't provide. Com- you know, combining the two, uh, you will be a good EOD tech in the future, in a good career. Mm-hmm. You're going to be serving with the cream of the crop in your respective service as far as personnel. Mm-hmm. You give them the respect that they're due, and they will give you the same respect back. It's, it's a field that offers a lot of challenges, uh, but if you go through the school and learn at the units, you can overcome those challenges with little or no problems. Mm-hmm. All right. And and anything for our, our EOD technicians that are serving right now? <clears throat> huh. Not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think for those that are serving now with the uh, tempo, uh, the op tempo that they've gone through with Iraq and Afghanistan and training back here and other uh, work, uh, there's nothing that, that I as a retiree can really uh, offer them. They've, they've learned it all, seat of the pants and firsthand experience. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's some excellent EOD techs out there today, and they have faced things that... Uh, people of my generation had never even thought of. Right, right. Well, thank you very much for that advice and wisdom, Bob. And I know that, you know, COVID-19 really put a damper on so much travel, and I understand that you and NPEG like to travel. So do you have any plans now that COVID-19 has subsided a bit? Well, we've already made a few trips. Uh, we went out to uh, Scott Air Force Base to uh, see uh, then Brigadier General Heidi Hoyle uh, get promoted to Major General and be, be the highest-ranking female officer in the EOD program. Mm-hmm. Going to visit relatives and family, uh, military show here or there. Next February, we're planning a two-week adventure to New Zealand, and we're looking forward to that. And just small trips, uh, two or three day trips out and about to visit uh, either historical sites or just to get out and relax. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm always open to any invitation from an EOD unit to visit or participate in an event or whatever. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And before I let you go, I always like to lighten things up a little bit and ask about some of your favorite things. So um, my first question to you is, what is your favorite treasured piece of military memorabilia that you have? That's hard to say because I like them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess... The one that stands out was one of the ones I picked up uh, in Ohio at a military show last month. It's something that I never thought I would see, uh, and it's a small collection of medals and the associated paperwork from an enlisted member of the 234th Ordnance Service Platoon Bomb Disposal in World War II. Wow. I've got a lot of research to do on the individual and the awards and his his duty and such. Uh, and then figure out how to display it all. But uh, you just don't see award groupings from EOD as being such a small community, and especially way back in World War II days, because either families are holding on to them or somebody threw them out, basically. Right, right. It's always sad to me uh, to see medals and military memorabilia or sometimes even photographs um you know at a yard sale or in you know the goodwill store or what have you and but you know hopefully somebody like you who has an interest in that 
like you said, you, you are the keeper, you know, <laughs> you're, right. you're, you know, maybe bringing that memorabilia back to life a little bit and finding the, you know, finding the history of it and doing the research, which is really cool. And, um, yeah, that's really neat. Really, really neat. How about your favorite time period of military history? The World War II era. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of the uh, military actions then and the equipments and ordnance used, but also because that's when the field started mm-hmm. with bomb disposal. Right. It's where we came from as a field today, and reading of the kind of the seat of the pants approach to incidents because of the lack of information and tools back then makes is very interesting and certainly makes me appreciate exactly what those men went through every day. Yeah. Um, how about a favorite meal? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever's in front of me. Uh, <laughs> no, raised on a farm, I'm a meat and potatoes type of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, basic food, simple, not anything fancy. Mm-hmm. Vegetables are a necessity, but not something I'd run to the front of the line for. Uh, just, <laughs> I'm somewhat of a typical man there, I guess. However, having served in the military and traveling in various uh, foreign countries, my first tour was in Japan, and I can say I have a love for Japanese food, definitely. Mm-hmm. Not particular, you know, any particular meal, but Japanese food in general. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, all right. So what about a favorite automobile that you've had in the past? Hmm. That's a tie. Tie, okay. I've always been a sports car fan. Okay. And I've got a Miata GT hardtop convertible now. But my favorites were also sports cars. One would be the first one that I owned, a 1964 Austin Haley Sprite. And I took it off the showroom floor for a whole $2,000. Wow. <laughs> it had side curtains instead of windows. In other words, they were just two thumb screws on each door that you fastened the, the windows on with on the side and you took the trunk off and put it in the back in the I took the trunk off, excuse me, took the top off, folded it and put it in the trunk in the back along with the side curtains. It was a joy to drive. Mm-hmm. And the other was a nineteen seventy six Triumph T R seven convertible, also known as the Wedge. A beautiful car, drove like a dream and I wish I had both of them today, but mm-hmm. most people that had cars in the early days have the same thought. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to hold on to all of those when you're when you're serving in the military too. You know, I'm sure there were decisions well, in your yeah, life. And it's like all the mm-hmm. things that uh, I never did when I was on active duty, never kept. Uh, when you're young and, and moving around, you don't think about keeping things for history purposes or you know, getting rid of a car because you need the money to buy a new car or something right. like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Once I got to out of the service, really, uh, I was in my early 40s, and I don't know what the, the impetus was that uh, put my mind to it, but all of a sudden I just thought that, uh, geez, I have the opportunity to collect some EOD uh, memorabilia and material and preserve a little bit of history and the collection started from there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, you know, everyone's needs and and everything like that, I mean, change when you're raising a family and life changes. So um, Mm -hmm. you can't can't always hang on to everything, that's for sure. But wow. Um, So... Both of those cars were a dream to drive. How fast did you go in them, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I tell you the truth, I don't recall uh-huh. you know, how much I spun those two up to. Uh, <laughs> the TR7, the Triumph, uh, had a lot more power than the little Austin Healy Sprite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would move out. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, the Mazda that I have today, the speedometer goes up to 150. Whoa. Uh, I just, uh, if everybody that listened to this would close their ears, uh, I've had it up to 115 uh-huh. uh, on an interstate with uh, not a whole lot of traffic. Well, no traffic, really. 
and I backed off because the tires are not major high speed, so I didn't want to have a blowout at 140 or whatever. Right. All right. Well, was Peg in the car with you? I was by myself. Okay. If Peg was in the car, I'd have been doing a little over the speed limit, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you had some fun anyway. That's cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just want to see what it would do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Bob, thank you very, very much for taking the time to chat with me today and, and sharing some important history and uh, your journey through the EOD career field and, and your love for for the Explosive Ordnance Disposal um, community. And it is always a joy to talk to you, and I wish you and Peg the very best, and I hope you both enjoy the summer. Certainly did, and I will thank you for the opportunity, and I hope I haven't bored your listeners. Mm-hmm. But after hearing this, they uh, still come back for more for hey. later interviews. Absolutely. I want Absolutely. to thank you for all the work you do in support of the EOD field also. Anyone who knows about the EOD Warrior Foundation knows your name and the work you do. Well, thank and you. if I could, I'd also like to thank all the EOD techs I serve with, any rank. Many helped shape my career, and they all deserve recognition for the work they did and their dedication to the field. I'd like to uh, congratulate the Texas today who fought the long and costly wars, carried the UD flag proudly, and my head is off to them. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Bob. Um, Very kind words. Um, All right. Well, uh, you have a wonderful rest of your day, Bob, and I look forward to staying in touch with you, okay? Same here, Sherry, and thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.